How are we looking on the audio waves today, Andrew? I think you're doing um, all right, all how, right, all right. How am I looking? Am I good? This is my normal speaking voice, and this is how I'm going to carry myself in this podcast. Do you think it's going to be acceptable? Uh, it looks pretty good. They're pretty monotone. I liked it. <laughs> all right, cool. Today is June 17th, Season 3, Episode 18. Decky No Blinker, how are we? Ooh, I like that one. Uh, Andy Paddleboard, doing well, man. It's a uh, We're right in the heat of the summer, right in the heat of the podcast grind. Like you said, the 18th episode of Season 3 already. 18th hole. Already, 18th hole. Uh, but we're not stopping here. We're only we're only just getting started. Brett Broll is a uh, investor, an entrepreneur. He is uh, a director of marketing, or oh, he's, a, he's a managing director at Techstars, and he's also the founder of the Syndicate Fund. You'll find out a lot about his story. Very unique for all the entrepreneurs out there. Love Brett Broll. He's, he's, uh, he's a little bit, he's got a lot of confidence, and that's what I loved most about Brett is his whole life story is self-made and, and in a way that he's just went after it and got and just attacked. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are going to love it. Enjoy. Hey, Deck. I got to be real with you. You got some of the worst apparel in the game out there. I would love to see you customize some shirts that just say, I have bad style. Mmm, Decky bad style. Let's make those shirts. The shock value would be insane. However, uh, turnaround time and quality, it needs to be there. That's a great point. I mean, we could launch this tomorrow with our own goddamn sponsor. Oh, I didn't even think of that. What? Well, actually, I did because I wrote this ad, dude. But that's besides the point. And with that being said, be on the lookout for some decky bad style shirts and other custom apparel from the BP. But also, if you're like, man, I need to find someone to make great custom apparel for me, look no further. Hit us up at backpocket at visionarymfg.com. That's B-A-C-K-P-O-C-K-E-T at visionarymfg.com. Back Pocket Podcast. Let's welcome Brett Broll. How you doing today? I'm feeling good. How about you guys? Freaking phenomenal, man. I had a crazy 24 hours, actually. I uh, I work a night shift sometimes, every once in a while, and <laughs> it just like scrambles your brain. I it's imagine insane. it does. Yeah, so that's where I'm coming off of the night shift, but I'm feeling good, high energy. <laughs> um, you're looking great with your Techstar shirt on, look, looking exactly like you do in your LinkedIn photo, which is great. <laughs> which is pretty funny. I, I just wear Techstars t-shirts a lot, and okay. so I just happen to look like my uh, my LinkedIn photo all the time. Yes, <laughs> I love it. How would you say Techstars uh, apparel game is? is it, does it need a little help, or do, you, or do you like where it's at? No, they're actually pretty strong. The okay. um, There's a lot of Patagonia Techstars gear out there. Really? And uh, and you see a lot of people from Techstars rocking like Patagonia vests or fleeces or other um, pieces of apparel from from that brand, which seems to be, you know, we're headquartered in Boulder. A lot mm-hmm. of people out of Boulder um, love the Patagonia brand. And so it's it's actually pretty strong. And it's interesting. A lot of our employees, a lot of the people, we have about 250 people world all over the world. And people rock um, Techstars gear. It's a it's a really strong brand, and people that work for Techstars are really proud of working there in general. So so you see a lot of Techstars shirts around. You see a lot of founders that 
have gone through a Techstars program that rocked the Techstars gear, shirts, jackets, hoodies. So I, and, and in the winter, I'm, I tend to be wearing my, my black Techstars hoodie. You see me around in that, which is, I don't know. I don't think I'm getting too old for hoodies, but I might be. <laughs> You're never too old for hoodies. That's one thing that we learned. Like we have a bunch of brands that come on this show and they'll give us like, I'm wearing one right now, Ghost Fit. Yep. And I mean, how many hoodies do we have now, Andrew? In, in this season alone, we, I think we each got four piece. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big season for hoodies for, for hoodies. the back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> it was unbelievable. That's awesome. Um, but with Techstars, I'd like to um, get our listeners, our marketing interns, a little bit of insight on kind of what Techstars is and then maybe the companies that have gone through the accelerator program that may be notable um, to help you know kind of bridge the gap for everybody involved. Yeah, Techstars, we're right now the largest accelerator in the world. We have um, about, we're approaching 2,000 portfolio companies that have come through a Techstars accelerator. So we're, we're an accelerator program. What that means is that uh, early stage tech companies they come through one of our uh, programs. We have 49 of them across the globe from Tel Aviv to London to right here in the U.S. And we bring 10 companies in a year to each one of our individual programs. We invest money in all of them. And then we put them through kind of an intense mentor-driven process that's geared to helping them improve their chances at success in building a big venture-backable startup. So we're talking about companies that want to be big, huge companies. Um and, you know, the program that we have, we have two programs here in the Twin Cities right now. We actually have, we have three. We have a program that's focused on food tech, which is the program that I run, and that's called Techstars Farm to Fork. We work with Cargill and Ecolab on that program. And so, you know, every year we invest, you know, we invest about $120,000 in 10 companies, so $1.2 million up front. We have uh, capital for follow-on investment into subsequent rounds, and they actually move here from all over the globe. So for... Our last program, we had applications from 37 countries. I looked at probably about 2,000 startups for the program. And so it is it is a fairly significant, um, you know, it's really hard to get into, right? It's a yeah. fairly significant application pool. And we're trying to invest and work with the best founders from all over the world. And that's true for all of our programs globally. And so the, the one that we, the one I run is focused on food tech. And then we also have a program focused on uh, health tech. It's in partnership with UHC here in town. Mm -hmm. And then we've had a program focused on retail tech in partnership with Target for the last several years as well. So we actually have three programs here, which is really unique for a metro to have that many Techstars programs. There's very few metros that have two Techstars programs, let alone three. And so it's pretty. It's actually pretty cool. It's a the fact that we have so many big corporations here in town kind of drives that because we can partner and do different vertical programs in the Twin Cities. And so. That's an overview of Techstars. Um, a few, as far as a few companies people might have heard of, a company called PillPack got acquired by Amazon about mm. three months ago for about a billion dollars. That was a Techstars uh, company. We had, um, I don't know, for anybody out there that's a Star Wars fan, the BB-8 droid mm -hmm. the, yeah. that rolls around. So the company that actually manufactures and make the, makes those, both the toys and the actual droid for the movies, is called Sphero. Oh, yes. And uh, Lola Red does their PR. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so Sphero is a Techstars company. Okay. Um, oh. So that's two. There's a bunch of other companies. A company called SendGrid, which IPO'd. It was the first ever company to go through an accelerator. And then IPO was a Techstars company. Whoa. Um, they were acquired for about $3 billion um, after their IPO. Um, so there's a variety of class pass is another one that a lot of people have heard of. Uh, it's a, I don't know if you guys have, but it's really big on the coasts. I actually think it is. Well, I know it's here in the twin cities now as well, but it's essentially a pass you can buy to go to a variety of gyms as opposed to one gym. Yeah. I've heard of that. So they're, they're a tech stars company plated, which got acquired by Albertsons. So it was one of the uh, meal kit okay. delivery companies. Uh, another. So there's a, a wide variety of companies that have been 
been very successful that have come through Techstars. My favorite stat about Techstars companies is right now, I think it's about 87%. So 87% of companies that have gone through Techstars are either still active or have been acquired. Um, and the national, you know, the well, national average for startups is about 10% are active or acquired. And so it kind of flips the national average on, on its on its head. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. It's part of its selection bias. Right. Um, well, you know, but also part of it is um, just, just how we help and how the network helps. So that's, that's Techstars. Uh, it's, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, our goal is to help entrepreneurs succeed. Is there a goal for them to get acquired more frequently or is the goal just to help them succeed? And if acquiring is the path for them, that's just how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, we want to help entrepreneurs however what they're, however they want help, right? It doesn't matter sure. if it's the acquisition. We just want to help them build big businesses. You know, our goal is to build big, sustainable businesses, right? There's, there's nothing wrong with building a, what I call a lifestyle company or something that you want to build and run for f- forever, um, but those tend not to be venture-backable. So we're, we are investing money, and in, in anytime a company takes investment from a venture capitalist, the expectation is that there's a liquidation event at some point in the next 10-ish years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, seven to 10 years. And so we are expecting IPOs and or acquisition at some point because we need to, you know, we're not investing um, just to invest. We're investing to make financial returns, right? Sure, you know, right. And, but we, we really are driven by helping entrepreneurs and we believe that by helping entrepreneurs succeed, we will then succeed. And so that's kind of the path that... Um, that we go down it it's a it's a cool organization it really is unique very unique uh, it's, and you know i believe it's the best accelerator in the world that's awesome man so how did you i mean get into all of this i mean i know you have um background as a founder yourself with a couple different companies um you come from the east coast in virginia uh in wake forest how did it, how did that all kind of come together with your yourself being an entrepreneur yeah i mean it's I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, I've been, I feel like I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I, mean, yeah. I was the kid in middle school selling king size candy bars out of my locker. Like legitimately, I sold king size candy bars out of my locker in Love middle school. That. And they didn't melt? No. Uh, I mean, I did. So I grew up in Florida. Uh, I grew up in South Florida, just north of Miami in a town called Delray Beach. And they did not melt though. Um, I was able to sell them fast enough. There um, you go. Mm-hmm. Hustler. But uh, I actually, so I sold. I sold candy bars, and then I made enough money to buy a CD burner. Bought a CD burner, bootleg CDs, and sold bootleg CDs. Like this was back in, um, you know, this is in the, gosh, early '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, just kind of always was hustling and doing things. I started. Uh, what were some of the hits that you do you remember? Uh, any of the CDs man. that you were burning? No, I don't. Okay. I, I honestly don't. <laughs> some Chili Peppers, <laughs> NWA. Yeah. You know. um, to name a few. NWA is a little or was a little bit before me. Okay. Still. Not okay. that. Not quite that old. Um, the uh, it was fun, and you know, but also built. Actually, my first real like real company was well, I started when I was really young, but I started cutting lawns, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of other kids do. Um, but I actually ended up turning it into, started doing landscaping, hired several people to do the lawn, actual cutting of lawns for me. Um, started doing landscaping, lighting design, and irrigation design for uh, for wealthy individuals that lived on like the intercoastal and that areas of, of Florida. And I I never really thought of it as a company, but I remember I, remember I was 16 and this guy gave me like a $15,000 check to go as like a down payment for the the design I was about to do for his house. And I was thinking, holy shit, right? Like, I'm 16 years old. And now looking back on it, I'm like, I would never give us, you know, what what kind of 16-year-old are you going to give a $15,000 check to? Are you building a moat? 
<laughs> to do like I mean we were, it was a fortress. <laughs> I mean we were doing like I mean so that house ended up being on um, it was either Discovery Channel or National Geographic Channel, one of those channels, and they were doing a showcase of the beautiful landscaping of Boca Raton, Florida. And that house, they quickly panned over it. They didn't do like a, they didn't do specifically into it, but they actually showed it. And it was a house that I did the landscape design. We actually, it was one of my first biggest mistakes. I actually ended up selling that company when I went to college and never got paid for it. Um, So, Hmm. which was a, you know, I've made a lot of stupid mistakes in my entrepreneurial career. And that was certainly one of them. The moral of that story, I'll keep it short, is um, in that business, the value is your accounts. Uh, and I had a lot of accounts and I went before I got any type of payment from the person I was selling it to, I went around and introduced this person to all of my accounts and then never got paid and I could have used the money in college, but, uh, but such is life. So that was, that was, you know, but again, I've been hustling and then I did go to college, um, went to work for a big company. I went to work for a big company for about two and a half years. I actually was after undergrad, I moved to Australia and was a tennis pro for a brief stint. A tennis um, pro, teaching pro, not, oh, not playing pro. Okay, okay. Um, and which is the coolest thing I've ever done. If one of the, if I, I anybody that's in college still that listens to this, I would hundred percent recommend doing some sort of year after you graduate and just go somewhere and get a stupid job. Uh, me and a buddy, we moved there together, and he washed dishes, right? And I just happened to get a cool job teaching tennis at a tennis center on a beach and uh, in Coogee Beach. It was both of us had like time of our life, right? We backpacked Australia for a month at the end of it. Really cool. Um, so I that's something that I'm, I'll always tell people to do. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And you were there for a full year, just under a year. Just under we a had, year. um, yeah, our visa. There was like we had to leave because of visas and stuff like that eventually, right. and we didn't break the law. So we got we came back. Um, that is that's bananas. I love that. So what was the exchange rate back then? Still as crazy as it was now. I don't remember. It was it was pretty cheap. Yes. Okay. Um. It was. I mean, we lived. It was a. I mean, we lived in what we didn't know at the time when we got it, but we lived in the ghetto of Sydney. Um. Literally one morning we woke up to somebody knocking on our door and it was the cops and they were asking us where were you? You know, at, at, at two between the hours of two a.m. and three a.m. last night. We're like we were sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> sleeping. Um. But uh, it was, I mean, it was a hell of experience. It was, it was a ton of fun. Was the uh, the tennis court on in like a wealthier area? No, at Coogee Beach, it's, um, well, I mean, like, yeah, but it was, um, it's a small, like, little tennis center mm. uh, in kind of a suburb of Sydney Okay, is where we were. And it was great. I mean, just, just a cool experience. It's freaking awesome, man. So going from there, uh, you come back to the United States. What was kind of that first move? Did you go and work for that uh, corporation for two years, and then kind of found the entrepreneur bug, or what yeah, was? Worked for always had the entrepreneur bug, but right. I went I went and worked for a big bank called BBNT, which yeah. is a huge bank in the southeast, and I actually really enjoyed that experience too. To be frank, I mean it was fun. I, you, I learned a lot about how big organizations run. I went through a management development program that they had, mm-hmm. and so I got to meet a lot of really neat people. And I was selling money. I mean I was a salesperson, right? And so my job with the bank was selling and i think it's it's another valuable skill that any entrepreneur should have is sales i don't care really what your role is in your startup kind of the founding team all needs to be able to sell right yeah um it doesn't mean you have to be the best salesperson in the world but you have to be willing to pick up a phone and try and so that was a really good experience to do that for a couple of years then ended up going back to so i did that for a few years on a bet i took the gmat 
which is the test to get into business school, and I did pretty well on it. And like you lost a bet and had to take the GMAT. No, I was me and some friends were drinking a few beers, and one of our friends took the GMAT and came back, and I may or may not have been taunting him about like, oh, is that all you did? But I, you know, I didn't, and I didn't even know what the GMAT was at the time, <laughs> and so he bet me a case of beer that I couldn't beat his score, and so I took the GMAT on a bet. Um, How'd you do? Pretty well. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I won the bet. Um, there you go. But then went back to business school. Um, mm. About then it was pure luck. I actually took the test before I graduated college. So I took it my senior year um, when I was in undergrad and decided to uh, just so because it's good for three to five years. And so I was like, I have this thing. I was living in northern Virginia at the time and kind of applied to a couple of business schools on just for the hell of it. Really, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing when I was applying to undergrad, had no idea what I was doing when I was applying to business school. I went about all these things the very wrong way. Um, but and then but I used business school. The reason I decided to go back was specifically to use it as a way to make myself uncomfortable so Mm -hmm. you know like the working for the bank was yeah, i was making plenty of money for my 23 year old self right i could live comfortably i'd go out with my friends you know i lived with three other guys and um was that it was awesome right and i could have seen myself doing that for a long long time going back to school was a way to kind of get me out of that comfort zone and i knew i wanted to start a company and so my goal when i went back was to use the two years as an opportunity to evaluate different ideas and then leave business school with a company that I could run full time. So that was the goal coming out of school was, was to do that and start down. And that's really where I got started down this, you know, path where I was an entrepreneur for quite some time and then became, um, you know, I work for Techstars, but I also run a venture capital fund. So I run a venture fund called syndicate fund in addition to the Techstars stuff. So that's how like this path got started was business yeah. school was my jumping off point. Gotcha. And when you were in business school, what were they or what was your like takeaways from there that made you get into th- these type of industries? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's the it, what I le- what I realized from business school that I didn't realize in undergrad when I was going through it. One of the I think really neat things about business school and specifically the schools that kind of force you to go work for several years before you actually go back to school. And so if you look at like some of the best business schools in the world, like they really don't accept people that haven't don't have work experience. And mm-hmm. for me, what that made me do is that made me appreciate school far more than I did when I was an undergrad and for what it is. And, and I, the way I think about school is school forces you. It's not about what you learn at school. It's not like the actual facts. It is um, you learn how to learn. Yes. So yes. and and business school was really good at that for me. You learn how to learn. You learn how to influence people. And um, the entire, I went to Darden, which is UVA's business school. And it's all case method. And so all you do is you basically argue in class about things with other really, really smart people. And it, it's a great way to learn how to learn. It's a great way to learn how to influence. And it was a great experience. And plus you build a crazy network, right? I mean, if you go to, you know, some of the, again, people that are going back to business school are all driven people. They're people that want to succeed. They want to uh, build things. And so it's a crazy network, right? Um, so that was great. I mean, at the time when I was at school there, right now, like today in 2019, all these schools have entrepreneurship programs. They all have, yeah. right? Then there wasn't, I mean, outside of like Stanford and Harvard and MIT, there really wasn't, there was, Darden had kind of just launched theirs as brand new, um, you know, not well run at the time. It's quite good now. And, you know, but then it it was kind of not sexy to be an entrepreneur yet 
and it's been like you know whether it's sexy or not to be an entrepreneur has gone through cycles right like prior to dot com it was super sexy to be an entrepreneur and then dot com boom and everybody's like oh you don't have a job so you're an entrepreneur and then it got a little bit sexy again and then you know and then there was the crash the financial crash in you know 08 09 and it wasn't sexy anymore to be an entrepreneur it was oh you can't get a job so you're starting a company and then right now it's a really sexy time to be an entrepreneur again and that'll that'll flip again at some point in the next couple of years why do you think that is by the way i don't know everything's cyclical um that's it, a good point i mean what happens is like during economic downturns like people get laid off people lose their jobs and so they go to start a company which is awesome and that's a great thing to do if you if you know if that's even if you're forced into it it's, it's why not try and do that right yeah um but it gives it a bit of a bad rap it's the oh you're doing this because you lost your job not because you really want to mm. and so i think that's a part of what causes it but i mean great businesses are founded regardless of what the economic cycle is i mean um, Airbnb and Uber, think about those two companies. They were both founded during the last economic downturn. Mm-hmm. And if we weren't in a economic downturn, do you think anybody would have ever rented a room in their house out to a stranger if they didn't need to help make mortgage payments? Do you think anybody would have ever taken their car and driven it around to pick people up, like pick strangers up if they didn't need to you know, make their car payment? I mean, mm-hmm. so there's opportunity in any economic cycle and uh those are two great examples of companies huge companies you know uber just ipo'd huge companies that were founded during a downturn recently and so um anyhow i i I am on a total tangent now well i i kind (laughs) of i want to keep going on that because you know uh we've gotten to know you a little bit and one of the things you know because you've you know you've vetted so many startups and have been around entrepreneurialism for quite some time and you know, and you've even uh, vocalized, you know, starting a podcast yourself and you've highlighted this, this whole idea of, Hey, it's not the, it's not the social network, Facebook story every single time. There's, there are these, um, you know, issues, these downturns, these failures, these other stories of entrepreneurship that need to be highlighted. And I like where you're going with that, where it's like the economic, uh, collapse and, and of 2008 and maybe one in the future, it's like, those are, um, just mere points of opportunity. Um, do you see that a lot with uh, the companies that you talk or that you've experienced with where you're having a ton of failure or there's just certain stories that, you know, people need to hear? I mean, I think, you know, my in my entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurship that I see and that I've yeah. lived. So I've, you know, I have founded, I don't know, seven, eight companies now. That's and crazy. And every one of them has been a grind. Right. None of them have been. And you talk to any founder, anybody that started anything like what you guys are doing here. Right. Yeah. I mean, it isn't a mad. There's not a magical train that takes you to IPO land. Right. <laughs> I mean, it is an absolute grind. And most companies fail. I mean, most startups fail. And that that's the reality of it. The and so you see, you know, the Facebook movie or you see um, some. There's, I, I mean, I love the stories of success, too. To me, the real story of entrepreneurship is the crazy ups and downs, right? And, and on a daily basis, when I uh, my first company I bootstrapped, and well, my first successful company I bootstrapped, and over four years I built this company, and we got it to a point where there was several people interested in buying it, and we went with one buyer, and the last two weeks, I thought it was going to fall through for two weeks. It happened to be over the holidays, like Christmas. In the New Year's, and so I couldn't get anybody to call me back because one of my suppliers wasn't signing off on the sale. And <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, I've been working on this company for four years. There's no way I can go, like, I can't keep continuing to run it because of once you got go down a path, like, there's like, and if this falls through, like, I just threw four, four years of my life down the drain. And 
And it, I mean, and I was at a real low point for about two weeks. I couldn't sleep. But I mean, it's crazy. And I mean, and that was, and we ended up selling that company. But the, I mean, that's just one. I mean, that just that whole process of building that company is just a grind. I was, um, for the first two years, I, I didn't pay myself for two years. The, um, I started the company. I borrowed $10,000 extra because I took student debt out for business school. And I had the ability to borrow $10,000 more. So I did, and I used that that money to start the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I would stay up. I was working, you know, hundred plus hours a week, you know, and I was doing stupid things in hindsight. But I was like sitting on my porch, just doing data entry into spreadsheets on like the inventory that we were carrying. Right? I mean, the it is. I mean, it's just a grind. Like you'll have a one, you know, you'll have a morning, you'll have a customer call you and say, "Hey, we're quitting. We're not going to work with you anymore." And then, and you're like, you know, shit. <laughs> three hours later you have somebody else call you and say hey we're gonna buy it and you're like fuck yeah right yeah um it's like the, the, the extreme valleys and the extreme mountaintops it, from a day-to-day almost i mean it is and um and the other thing that's really hard about entrepreneur there's a lot of things that are really hard about it but um i think that being the ceo of a company is one of the loneliest things you can do in the world mm. the when you're running a startup and you're the ceo you need to be for your employees you need to be the rock you need to be the person that, like, no matter what happens, you you don't get too high and you don't get too low. And if you're not that, you if you lose it yourself, like, either get too high or too low, your employees are going to lose it and you'll never get them back. Um, so you need to be the rock, right? And, and so you can't really talk about what's going on in your brain to any of the people that work with you, even your co-founders, because, um, you know, it's your job to be that person. There's not many people that have started companies in this world. So the only people that really, really get it are people that have done it. And so you don't, it's a really small peer group. Um, and so who do you talk to? Like most of your friends aren't entrepreneurs. At the, you know, when I was doing this, like very few of my friends were entrepreneurs and trying to do something on their own. That's pro- partly on me for not networking well enough. But it's, it's like, who do you talk to about what you're going through, the ups and yeah. downs? And so it's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and it's, it is actually, like I said, kind of lonely kind of um difficult and it is a real grind and there's certain things that and that's why like accelerators and incubators which have exploded over the last five six years are a great thing because they build they give you a peer network they give you a mentor network that you know founders from 10 15 years ago didn't really have they had to build it themselves right right it was a lot tougher to build that yourself and so um and that's the story of entrepreneurship that i know and that i love is that that grind i mean and i love it like the grind it's so rewarding though it is when you build something from nothing it is it's so rewarding to do it's rewarding to have people like what you've done it's rewarding to sell something for me it is anyways right and i love the building the team too like you build a team that believes in it right you hire people and and they do well we have we used to call my first uh, successful company was called scrub squared which is a terrible name but we had um, we had um, one of our brands was Scrubadoo. Scrubadoo.com was one of our brands that we owned. And we we used to like love it when our employees would go off and do something else that was cool, right? And we actually called them Scrubadoo alumni. And so it was we, – we got excited when people that worked for our company went off and just started their own thing or found something else really cool that they were passionate about. And that was what was fun about the entrepreneurship to me was building people, building teams – you know, just building something from scratch is exciting in general. I totally agree. Um, I originally got the entrepreneurship bug my senior year um, in engineering where you get to choose a company to work for and, you know, build out a project for a whole year of your senior year. It's like a capstone. 
and we worked for a startup wind turbine company and it we got to the point where you know we were putting in some serious hours that grind and really just being so naive to everything that was going on around us but when we kind of looked up at the end of the year we were like well it was me and another buddy who were pretty much doing the whole thing and we looked up and we were like wow we're the only engineers working for this entire company (laughs) and we're 22 this is nuts but it was really cool like you said to get that get that experience of like ownership almost Mm -hmm. and like when you're given that ownership you triple down even more if you're that naturally accountable person you put in 60 hours instead of 20 or whatever you're expected of Mm -hmm. um and so that's how like we i got the the kick right away and then now running this podcast for like two and a half years and we go from you know barely even knowing how to record to now trying to find like different partnerships with like pr companies or the right guests to fit our podcast and you kind of just like look up and you're like well like these are the conversations we're having now you would have never expected like who your first like talk about who your first hire is or any of that stuff i don't know it blows my mind mm-hmm. it's it's fun it is absolutely blows my mind and i think one of the uh, most rewarding aspects and you already mentioned this was you have to do it all as an entrepreneur you, you really can't turn to anyone um, at times it's like you know your brand you know your product best so you might as well put in the extra man hours working 100 hour weeks staying up doing the data entry where you could easily outsource that but you don't have the money to outsource it so you got to stay up late but that's the fun in the game and that's the most rewarding aspect when things turn around um, as an entrepreneur who's seen some success and seen some failure, is there a um, an example that you'd like to share of maybe one of those times where you it kind of fell on your shoulders and uh, the people and you you couldn't turn and uh, blame it to or point a finger almost and you had to own that type of uh, that responsibility. I mean. Every time anything went poorly, it's your fault. Yeah. I, I mean, like as a founder, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's it, when, especially when you have small teams, even if it's, if something that somebody on your team didn't do something, the reality is it's because you didn't train them or you didn't teach them or you didn't, you know, um, we had, um, probably the biggest, one of the couple, one of the bigger mistakes I've made largely are around hiring, uh, and mm. bringing the wrong people in. And so in my last company, uh, my mo- or my most recent company, which uh, we raised venture capital for, we had. I mean, it's so funny. Like this last company, you'd think that it was like a sure thing, right? We, um, I was an experienced entrepreneur that by that time, I was bringing my key person from my last two companies in with me that we'd both we'd sold both of them. She was phenomenal, um, and we were able to raise venture capital from one of the best funds in the world, um, and. So we were well backed. We had the network. We had experience, um, and we ended up. Everybody lost money on that company. Like we all, you know, we sold it, but it, uh, everybody, nobody did well on it. And one of the there's a couple of reasons, but one of the biggest mistakes I made was I hired. Um, I made some bad hiring decisions, and specifically around culture fit. So, you know, I I brought in people that I brought in one person that was really talented, and when you only have like four people, you're when you bring on one more person, you increase your your workforce by 25%, right? Four to five. Um, and that changes your culture potentially by that much too. Yeah. And so if you, if it's not a good culture fit, then all of a sudden everybody else is going to be miserable and nobody's going to want it. Part of what you were saying earlier is you bring people in, they get excited and they're, they can't wait to work there. They want to put their extra hours in. If all of a sudden they don't love working there anymore for whatever reason, 
you know, you lose that and you lose the excitement and everybody stops having fun and let not as much gets done. And so I made that mistake in a hire. I mean, we literally had people in my office in tears. That's how bad the it like became a toxic culture. Oh man! <clears throat> and I didn't fire this person fast enough. Um, I gave too many chances. I I made a lot of. I, I should never hire. I I knew when I made the hire, I shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have done it. Right? Like yeah. that's the shit. That's the really bad part. Is I was doing it. I was like, man, this person checks every single box except culture. But we really need to fill a seat. We need to put a button in a seat. Mm-hmm. Like we raised capital. We need to hire fast and move fast and having a hard time filling this role and but um man that was a huge mistake and i ended up firing him which firing people is never fun but it it was crazy how even after we did that how much faster we we moved but we by that point we'd wasted six months of time and when you raise venture capital you have like you know 15 months of runway before Mm -hmm. you have to raise another round or or you die and i went back to my and we did so we made no progress for six months like we lost 40% 40% of our runway, right? Because largely because of one bad hire. Other things were going on, but I mean, that's one of the things that really slowed us down and went back to my investors, had a, you know, we, we could have raised a little bit more capital at that point. We had raised not a ton. We'd raised probably about a half million dollars and we could have raised probably another half million dollars um, if we'd wanted it. But our, one of my advisors and who was one of our biggest investors basically said, Hey, do you, do you think this is going to work? And I was like, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 and I truly didn't, you know, I, there's a path I think we could have gone down, but it's like, I don't know. And he's like, if you don't know, let's sell it, get, get what we can out of it, kill it and figure out the next thing. And that's, that's what we did. And it was, I think it was really good advice, right? You know, if, if you're it again, entrepreneurship is so hard that if you truly don't believe in what you're building, then sell it, kill it and move on. Wow. Right? That's cutthroat. That is um, cutthroat. I mean, Holy like, shit. I, I mean, like it's, it was it was crazy. I mean, literally, he was like, like, basically, he was like, fuck it, right? You yeah. Know, like, it, don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. Sell it, like, before the end of the year so I can take my write off and let's move on to the next yep. one. Um, wow. And so, it was, I mean, it was crazy. Um, it, I learned a lot from that inve- uh, from that investor. Um, it was, it was, I think, in hindsight, quite good advice. I think we could have, I actually think, in hi- I also think in hindsight, there's another path we could have gone down. This company is called Boom Boom Prints. We were, an art marketplace. It was similar to Etsy, but we handled the back end fulfillment for the artists and we were focused on family friendly art. Really cool concept. Um, artists loved us, but it was really hard for us to get our voice heard above the crowd on the consumer side. Cause there was a lot of, you know, there was Etsy. There's, you know, all these artists are having their own websites. There's society six. There's a variety of art marketplaces that were popping up, but artists really liked us, but it's just hard to acquire customers. And so, mm-hmm. um, that was a real issue too. So, but that was an example, a specific example of something that I really messed up that mm-hmm. we, uh, was definitely on my shoulders and basically killed the company. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. So, um, you know, now that you've kind of been on the ownership side and the investor side, I'm curious as to what an investor like yourself looks for in a company or more so when even in an owner or a founder, what are the kind of intangibles or just kind of opportunities that, um, an investor like yourself would be looking for? Yeah. At the stage I invest in, I, I try and invest pretty early. So mm-hmm. I'll invest. I don't, I don't invest until there's at least an MVP done. So I have to have a minimum viable product done in market. Um, okay. And so uh, does that mean they have to like sell something or have sales or no, it's so most of the companies I invest in do have some sort of revenue, but doesn't necessarily have much. Okay. Um, 
you know, but a minimum viable product is just something that's usable. You can touch, feel. You have users. If you if you don't have revenue yet, you at least have some users. You have some betas or pilots going. Yeah. So it's not gotcha. um, you're not an idea on a napkin, basically. Yep. <laughs> You've actually built something, even if you don't yet have revenue. Um, that's kind of my earliest I'll invest, um, which is actually pretty early. And but what I mean at that stage, what I'm really looking at and what I'm really thinking looking for is great teams. So I'm looking mm -hmm. for great founding teams. And specifically, uh, what I'm looking for in a team is I want founders that are intelligent, they have great work ethic, um, they're coachable, and they have great culture. Um, and so those are actually, after I made some bad hires, those are four things. Actually, even before I made that last bad hire, those are the four things I always look for in hires were those four things. And which is, again, going back to why I knew this one wasn't going to work out because I knew he didn't check my culture box, right? And um, and so I... It, Every time I've gone away from that, I've, it's it's bit me in the ass. And so the what you'll notice is missing that a lot of people tend to hire for is experience. And so mm -hmm. I don't need I don't have an experience box that I need checked. I believe if you're coachable, intelligent, have great work ethic, you can really learn. I have the network that I can put people in a room with you and help you learn and grow as a founder. But if you don't check one of those boxes, you're not going to be coachable or you're not smart enough or you don't work hard enough, like you might not learn it, right? And then the culture thing is just important for other reasons. Um, you need to fit in. I I am, I am, want to work with people that I enjoy, right? I don't, um, life is too short to not do that. And so culture fit is really important. I, You know, for, for founding teams that I invest in, I do like multi-founder teams. So I like teams that have multiple co-founders. Uh, entrepreneurship is hard. It's easier when you have somebody on the journey with you. Um, and specifically multi-founder teams that have complementary skill sets with each other. Mm -hmm. um, the best resource you have at the stage that, you know, we invest are your time, right? And so if you have two people that overlap, like if you have two people that are just salespeople, yeah, it's probably not the best founder fit, right? If you have one yeah. tech person and one business person, it's probably a bit better, um, that bit, bit better founder fit. And so those are kind of the things I look for in a team. Um, you know, as far as it's like team, 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 product market traction are the six things that we say it, that I say for tech stars <laughs> for my product. Uh, but like team is, you know, 50% of it. Uh, going off the co-founder aspect, you mentioned earlier that you were part of a company that you became the CEO with a couple co-founders. Is that correct? Yeah. The, um, the last company we had, um, I actually wasn't, it wasn't my idea. I came in and, um, and was a co-founder, but I was a little bit of a late join co-founder, okay. but we had a technical co-founder. Um, I brought, um, a woman who was always kind of on the marketing side for me and she kind of, she became a co-founder with that company too. And so we had multiple founders on that in the last one. I was actually a solo founder for the majority of my startups though. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, with this one in particular, I'm really curious on, that's nuts in itself. Like it, I, it say Declan and I had to determine who would become the CEO. I'd already point at Declan because I think he, he would man it much stronger and uh, he's just, Thanks, I think, man. yeah, I think he'd crush it. Uh, but <laughs> that, I mean, just that, that, that idea of, I mean, I don't know how to handle it or a company, a team of four, they're all co-founding and you have to pick one sole leader. That's not easy. No, it's not. Um, and, but it, it, you know, oftentimes the, how it happens is whoever's idea it was is, becomes the de facto CEO, gotcha. right? Um, and that's not necessarily the right answer, mm -hmm. um, but that's often how it happens. And so the companies that succeed are the ones that have like, a strong founding team and you have them in the right seats for the, for the company. Right. Um, or it's the teams that have people that real are willing to look at themselves in the mirror and realize whether or not they are in the right seat for their company and have a willingness to move. 
I mean, most most founders that start a company aren't the ones that are still the CEO when the company is sold or IPOs. Right. Very few. There are very few Mark Zuckerbergs out there that can take it from founder all the way to IPO. That is the most companies. The CEO and the founding team actually ends up getting replaced at some point along the line. By like and, a more elite team that knows how to run a bigger company, or like what's uh, the how does it work? It, it's not not necessarily more elite team. It's more a better fit for the stage the company is at. Mm. It, taking a company from zero dollars in revenue to one dollars in revenue is really hard, and that takes a, a certain skill set. Taking it from one dollar in revenue to a million dollars in revenue is a bit different skill set. Taking it from a million to twenty million in revenue is another skill set, and taking it from twenty million to IPO is a whole nother skill set. Mm. And so there are very few people that have all of those skill sets or the gotcha. ability to learn those. Um, you know, so a lot of times you'll see a founder take it from one to ten million in revenue, and and then they don't like it anymore because then instead of oh. being like the the visionary, being the founder, the one grinding, the one growing, the bootstrap guy, all of a sudden now you're managing one hundred and fifty employees. And that's not fun for a lot of these founders. They like getting their hands dirty and building something, right? Yeah, yeah. And and you go from getting your, you know, being the executor to being the manager, and that's a, just a different role. And a lot of pe- a lot of founders don't like it. And that's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just um, it's it's not usually it's not the investor saying you can't do this anymore. Usually it is a just a real conversation around. Hey, are you still having fun as CEO? Do you want to? not be ceo anymore i mean it might be better for the business if we bring somebody in that's a really like that's a proven operator that's gone from 100 employees to a thousand employees or whatever the case is and so it's just usually a uh there's nothing bad about the situation it's usually just a fit of skill sets or even enjoyment and where the stages of the company so i have another question about um kind of that whole structure like board members so i mean we talk about uh, we talk to entrepreneurs all the time with their own companies, and they're like, "Yeah, he's like, he's on my board. Got this guy on my board. You know, board's pretty stacked. Like, I don't know what that means. What like got a couple hall of famers? Got on a my couple board. hall of famers. You know, yeah. uh, do we have a board? I don't know if we have a board yet. We've had a lot of people. We like to ask for advice. Yeah, yeah. Are, are those pretty much board members, or just like the guy, the people who would be able to that know your company that would be able to advise, or the investors, or like, how does it? How do you form a good board? Um. So a lot of companies have, there's two different definitions of a board, right? So you have an advisory board sometimes. And an advisory board is a more of an informal board, and it's people that, you know, you try and bring on. It's just people essentially that like you, believe in you, like what you're doing, and want to help you. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that you reach out to and email and call and when you need advice on something. Mm-hmm. So that's an advisory board, and it's more informal. And that's like where when you hear founders go, I got a stacked board, usually – that is what they're talking about is their advisory board. Yeah. And I always take that for a grain of salt. I actually don't love like advisory board slides and pitch decks. Because most advisory boards aren't super active with companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually they don't have fiduciary responsibility. And um, and usually they're like a friend that, sure, you can call them every other month if you need, you know, a quick tip, right? Um, and that's great. Like, and they can be super helpful. But they're more mentors than board, right? Um there are some companies that do a really great job forming a more formal advisory board and where they will actually offer equity to an advisor, advisory board members. Usually an advisory board member in a, in a formal situation gets between a quarter percentage and a one and one percent of a board, depending on the quality of that person, what they bring to the table. And usually it's vested over, you know, so there's a vesting schedule around it, which means that you don't get all that equity up front. 
Um, it's usually time-based. So you're going to earn this 1% of equity over two years based on these things. So it can be, you know, depending on what that advisory board member is supposed to do for you, it could be introductions. It could be just meeting with me once a month. It could be, so I'm in on, I'm on a couple advisory boards and, and I get, um, equity incented to do it, but the founders that do it really well that I like, the ones that I work with, they say, Brett, would love to have you as an advisor to my company. Here's my expectations of you. Do you want to do this or not? Right. Mm, I want you gotcha. to meet, I want you to meet with me once a month over the phone, at least minimum once a month over the phone and quarterly in person. And, uh, when we go to fundraise, I expect you to be very active in helping me review our pitch deck, review the pitch, uh, making introductions for fundraising. And so they do the ones that do a great job are the ones that really formalize what the advisory board looks like and what their expectations of me. So that's one form of a board. Most advisory boards are kind of, you know, not really a thing. And then there's formal boards. Um, so there's a board of directors, yeah. which are people that actually have a fiduciary responsibility to that business. And um, oftentimes those are formed once you bring on outside investment. So if you're, if you're, you know, an early stage startup and you, I'm on several boards that I've invested in. And a part of my investment was a requirement that they let me sit on their board. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in that case, basically what I'm doing is I'm often representing all of the private investors into this company. So I'm the one that's, uh, you know, basically helping, um, helping the company grow. And even those people, it's not like a, my job is on a, on a board, uh, on a, on that kind of a board, a board of directors. My, it's not, my job's not to babysit the CEO or the company. I still look at my job as a, I am the person to help you, right? When you have questions, you can ask me. I, I am, I should be somebody you go to, to help think through the strategy, the hard things, like where are we going? Here's this tough thing that we're fine. You know, we're, um, we're facing right now. How can we, how can we think around it and strategize around it? And not a lot of board of directors take that approach, I think for, but that's the way they should. There's a great book written by Brad Feldman, uh, called startup boards that if anybody's interested in, in how to form these things and how to properly run a board, startup boards is an awesome book that people should read Sweet. or listen to. Um, and, and that's the way they should be run. So that those are kind of the two differences. And on a board of directors, Usually the board has the power to fire a CEO and executive team. Advisory oh, mm-hmm. boards do not. Okay, so gotcha. again, there's fiduciary responsibility in one. There usually isn't in the other. And so we have a fiduciary responsibility on the board of directors to the shareholders of the company, including private investors, but also the common stockholders. Gotcha. Huh. I got a feeling people are asking you to come, uh, to be on their uh, to be a board member in their company because you have this this confidence this almost like I like to call it like a mamba mentality Kobe Bryant style not like the selfish I won't pass the ball but how you just kind of you know what you're doing and you're going to go out and do it and you're going to lead it with a lot of passion and you care about the other people around you um, and kind of one of those instances is you're a keynote speaker and you oh, go yeah. around the country and you get to share your story um i'm not really sure exactly what you talk about but i know you're a keynote speaker food tech right a a variety of things yeah okay how has that been um um, trying to communicate your message to various cultures it's fun i I enjoy talking right Uh, to the kobe um i've never seen a shot i haven't liked like yes i mean it's true um (laughs) (laughs) whether it's a good shot or not it's questionable but i've never seen what i don't like what's your favorite shot corner three Oh, man. Um, you were a basketball coach at one point, right? 
uh youth youth like i just coached like just volunteered youth basketball coach. okay yeah so um, what's your favorite chat man I don't know. I, again, I've never seen one I didn't like. So, um, <laughs> Just get this guy the ball. Yeah, well, I also bring up Kobe because I know you like to talk a little smack at times. Um, that, it can be fun. Um, <laughs> only when you're winning. Um, it actually doesn't really matter. It actually doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the speaking stuff is fun. It's um, when I, you know, anytime I talk, whether in front of any group, usually I try and talk to entrepreneurs in the room and, and just try and, whether I'm right or wrong, you always know where I stand and you always know my opinion. Yeah. Um, and that is my goal, right? I have an opinion. I'm going to give it to you. Take it for what it is, right? I'm one data point, And, uh, you know, if you're doing your job, you're collecting multiple data points and then making uh, an educated decision on your side. And I'm, I'm, But I'm not afraid to give you mine um, mm-hmm. to include it in that um, set of data that you have before you make a decision. And so, when I, you know, anytime I speak, right? So some of it, I do talk about food on food tech, the topic is of food tech. So the last one I did was actually about artificial intelligence and food was the last talk I gave. I also do a talk about, like, um, I have one where I talk about 19 ways to blow your company up, right? To kill yeah. your company is one that I've done, right? Which is more geared towards entre- geared towards entrepreneurs. I do one about how to fundraise faster. There's a variety of different things that um that that I'll speak on. It, it's just fun. In terms of like a, and this is I guess just for us, um, when you look at like a podcast and you, I mean, from what we've experienced, it's a lot of brand awareness. Like people come on here, spread their spread their company message and all that stuff. Do you see um, the podcast industry as like a, I don't know, fundable industry. Like if there's a startup podcast or any of that kind of stuff, is there, is there a place for that in your opinion? I don't know. Are you pitching me for money right now? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm just asking. I'm Cause just like, I, probably, I don't even probably know be on works. our board more than anything. <laughs> yeah. We just want you <laughs> we to need a Kobe Bryant. Out. We need a co- guy taking shots. <laughs> I was just joking. I was just joking. Um, I don't, we'd know. love to have you on our board. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess, I, I guess I don't know about, I don't know enough about the industry, right? Okay. It's not it's not a the podcast space isn't one that I know well. I don't claim to know it well. In fact, I probably know very little. You guys definitely know way more about podcasts than I do right now. <laughs> and that's okay, right? Yeah, I mean, no, that's awesome. Most of the founders I work with know way more about the industry than I ever will. Yeah. Um I don't I shouldn't be the expert in industry. Right. Um I mean there's been some successful companies like, that have raised capital in the podcast world, right? Yeah. And so so then, which would lead me to believe that it is fundable um, and that there is like growth opportunities, right? When you think about bringing on capital into a company, the investor mentality, the venture capitalist mentality, so there's different angel investors are individuals that are investing their own money. Uh, a venture capital fund like mine, I am investing other people's money, right? right? So I have investors that have invested in me to then invest their money. Oh, and that's so that, the syndicate fund, right? Yep. And so that's how, and that's a, just a traditional venture capital fund, right? Gotcha. And um, so I have what are called LPs or limited partners that have invested in this fund that I have the approval to go out and I can invest in whatever I want, basically. I can invest this money in anything I want. But I have a fiduciary responsibility, there's that word again, to make money for, or try to do my best to make money for these people, right? There's no promises, and there's no guarantees, but my goal is to provide financial returns for the people that have invested in my fund. And I tell that story to get back to your question, which is, is it investable? And so as a fund, what I need, because there's such a low success rate in startups mm-hmm. and in venture-backed startups, I need a lot of big winners, right? Or not a lot. I need a couple of the companies in my portfolio that I invest in. So let's say with this current fund, I'll invest in 20 companies. I need at least two or three of them to be really big companies. And... So when I invest in any company, I need to have a vision of 
this is how this company becomes a company that's doing $100 million in revenue or $200 or $300 million in revenue. So it can IPO or it can be sold for a billion dollars. Because if I don't have at least one company in my portfolio that ha- that becomes a billion dollar company or close to it, I'm probably not going to be able to provide great returns to my investors. Mm-hmm. And so every company I invest in at the beginning, when I first meet them, I need to believe that they have that potential. So all oh. 20 of these companies, in my wildest dreams, I the founders need to paint a picture to me of how they can be a billion dollar company one day, right? Or a company yeah. worth a billion dollars one day. And so... That's where, you know, for you guys or for, you know, in the podcast space, it's how do you one day become a company that can be doing $100 million in revenue? And that's for most venture capitalists. You're going to hear that. How are you a billion dollar company one day? How are you? Yeah. And, and it's because the way that the it's because of the financial mechanisms that we use. We have, you know, my current fund is about a $6 million fund. So I have $6 million of money to invest in things. And that's a tiny fund. That's a really small fund um, relative to the venture capital world. What's like the projected return that these people want? Is there a number that they're looking for, percentage? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we want to be able to provide at least a 30% ROI to our investors. Gotcha. Um, and But to do that, right, I need to make that turn that $6 million into $25, 30000000 million over, you know, seven years. Yeah. And so, dang. Um, and to do that, right, when you own small percentages of companies, because when I invest in a company, I'm not, I don't own 50% of a company, right? Right. You know, maybe I own, by the time they exit, I might own 2%, 1% of a company, right? So if you sell for $10 million, like, that might sound great, but if I only own 1% of you, right, that's not quite as great for, you know, it's a hundred grand. And if I have, um, you know, a $6 million fund, I can't have twenty hundred thousand dollar exits, otherwise I'm gonna lose everybody's money. And your time towards twenty different companies at a hundred grand, that's not, yep. you're not gonna have enough time in the day to even manage all that. But, as an angel investor, right? Angels, like if they invest fifty thousand dollars and it gets turned into a hundred thousand dollars, that's okay, right? Like because it's yeah. just their own money; they're just managing their own money. So right. sometimes it's okay for angels. Angels invest for different reasons, but that's mm. but that to your. I mean, it's a really like long loop to your question, but that's I don't know enough a ton about the podcast space, but as far as the investing space, and if you're going to pitch people or think if anybody's out there thinking about pitching people. Think about that. Like, who are you pitching? Why are you pitching that person? What are they looking for? And, you know, in the venture capital fund space, venture capitalists are looking for companies that have the potential for 10x, 20x, 30x returns. You know, on, mm. on average, I write about $200,000 checks in a company. So when I write a $200,000 check, I need to believe in my mind that this could one day, this $200,000 check could be worth $4 million in and of itself, right? Okay. I, I, I can see a 20x return on this, you know, on this, in this investment. Or, okay. Gotcha. And then one more question on that. How do you value, evaluate your own company? And, and we're asking, how do we evaluate this company? Because we have no idea. <laughs> guess. Yeah. I, mean, okay. I mean, honestly. We can guess. Um, Throw some, crunch some numbers. At early stages, like, there's no, you can't do, like, a discounted cash flows, or you can't do a, it's really hard to value a, value a company based on metrics at the earliest stages okay um the it eh, what will the market bear so if you actually go out and fundraise yeah what are people willing to invest at yeah you got to do a little bit of what value yeah what valuation are people willing to invest at what valuation are other companies in your space raising capital at Mm. um so all of those things are um 
kind of what will drive the value of your company at this stage, but it's all paper value anyways. And then as an investor, when I invest, like, sure, like I might invest in a company and let's just say that's a $5 million valuation and there's essentially zero revenue, right? Like how is this company worth $5 million? Well, part of it is if they're raising, you know, $2 million, they're going to give up, you know, um, you know, a significant portion of their, of their company. Right. So they're giving up, 30% 30% of their company in that or close to around 30% of the company in that example. Um, I picked bad numbers because uh, the math isn't perfect. Um, <laughs> but right. And so you, but you want as an investor, you want the founders to continue to at this, at the early stage, you want them to own a lot of their company still. Yeah. And so if I, if you invest $2 million and, and even though they're pre-revenue, maybe like on paper, would anybody pay $5 million for that company? No. Right. But if we said, Hey, you're only worth a million, we're going to give you 2 million. All of a sudden you're giving up, you know, 66% of your company and like what, you know, how are you incented, right? Like the founders, it's entrepreneurship is so hard and such a grind that founders need to be incented um, by owning a good percentage of it. So part of it, the earliest stages, honestly, you know, how much do we, what's the, what's a good ownership makeup? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a great question, Deck, And I love that you're asking us these questions because I believe, and we believe that our road to becoming a billion dollar podcast, the, the back pocket podcast is by asking our core questions are asking our favorite question. And it's asking, <laughs> what is your average quality? This is something we've asked every single guest. It's something that you do well at times and other times not so well. We're a pair of wildly average podcasters that are just trying to be a little bit better each day. So Brett, what is your average quality? Man, um, the it's something that humbles me frequently. So I'll ch- I'm gonna flip it a little bit. So something that frequently humbles me is fatherhood. So I've got a mm. five year old and a three year old, and I think I'm a pretty good dad. But man, there's like always there's at every life stage there's new challenges, and um, and it is a really humbling experience in a really good positive way. Um, the you know just the until you, for me, until you have kids, you never really understand unconditional love. And once I've had kids, I, you understand that you really do. Um, both them to you and you to them. And you're just, man, I don't want to fuck this up. Right. Um, <laughs> you buy a minivan. Like I, I drive a minivan. Yep. I pulled up in a minivan. Today. Dude, your fatherhood um, is already 10 X with that purchase. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I love my minivan. It's so good. Um, is it a town and country? No, I have a, I've got a Toyota Sienna. Interesting. Um, uh, How do you like it? Is it drivable? Ah, great car. It's got um, it's it's got all wheel drive. So in the snow up here, Good. it's great. Great car. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Love the minivan. And you picked it, or did your wife pick it? Uh, we both. It was a joint joint selection. Joint. Joint. Good um, answer. But Good I answer. drive it. But I drive it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. MPG. What's it looking like? <laughs> <laughs> Better than my old car. Probably about twenty miles a gallon. All I right. Mean, yeah. It, I mean, it hums. You can go for a long time in this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Um, Here's another dad question. At what <laughs> age do you let your kids sit in the front seat? Oh, uh, not yet. My oldest is Good answer. My, my my oldest is almost six. Um, I don't know actually off the okay. top of my head. Right, it's humbling. Yes. Um, my <laughs> I, I, I will figure it out whenever yeah. he's just about. He's big enough to get out of his car seat now. Okay. Um, but we still have a minute because he still fits in it. We're kind of like, well, no reason to rush it. Mm-hmm. So. But I don't know. Uh, but he's not not yet. He's not in the front seat yet. That's a good answer. At his age, I was in the front seat. Were you really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Like, definitely. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't even really have seatbelts. You were a rambling man back then, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, that's what you did. Well, being a father, this, uh, this begs the question, are you going to love every shot that your kids take? <laughs> <laughs> probably probably not. <laughs> probably not. I mean, I mean, honestly, right? Yeah. I mean, just honestly, kids yeah. or and or entrepreneurs that I work with, right? <laughs> 
I both like both of these. I'll see things that they're doing. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Don't go down that path. Like you're gonna get hurt, or you're gonna you're not gonna like it once you get there. Sometimes people gotta learn on their own. Yes. I mean, you can only <laughs> with children and with founders. Um, you handle them the same, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> Not exactly. That's this is probably going to come off poorly. Yeah. But like that's one one way where that is one example of how like oh, man, you'll give advice to a founder and I'll be, I mean I live that. Don't do that. I did that exact thing and I pissed a hundred thousand dollars down a toilet. You know, and if you'd go down that path, you're going to piss a hundred thousand dollars down a toilet also. And they do it anyways, right? And then yeah. they piss a hundred grand. I'm like, told you man why didn't you listen to me and i imagine that there will be especially as my kids grow up and get older more and more examples of me saying like listen i mean if you really want to do that i mean it's on you but you're probably not going to like the outcome mm-hmm. but sometimes you got to learn by fire um it's just the you know, people need to teach themselves and and not i'm not always right no nobody giving you advice is always right mm-hmm. nobody's right 100 percent of the time and so i might give advice and Maybe I'm wrong, and and it's great. I actually sometimes when I tell when I tell founders no, or when I give them advice, like if you don't if you don't agree with me, then prove me wrong. Like I hope you do, yeah. right? Um, That's like a a great example of that is uh, David Meltzer. Uh, do you know who he is? Mm-mm. He's a founder of uh, Sports One Marketing. He's a he's a big like keynote speaker entrepreneur. He uses this example with advice. He says, um, when I graduated law school. And the internet was getting started. I wanted to go into a internet startup company, and my mom and I was deciding between an internet startup and uh, just going to be a lawyer. And he talked to his mom about it, and his mom goes, "Dave, the internet is an absolute fad. You don't need to be getting into that. Take the normal law school job. You know, get a get a normal job and go for it." And he's like, "Advice is great and all, but sometimes you don't have to always take it." Yep, it's wild. Totally. Yeah, That's I mean, a, it's a great example. Yeah, nobody, nobody. I mean, I'm, nobody's infallible, right? Mm-hmm. So I give advice, but I, I call it. I do it a little differently. I say that everybody's advice is data points, and I said this earlier, right? Yes. I mean, get as much of it as you can, collect the data points, but you got to make the decision because you're the one that's got to live with it, right? Yep. As an individual, as a human being, whatever decisions you make, you got to live with the outcomes. So uh, it's I, uh, the the result is on you, regardless of whose advice you listen to. Yeah. So collect the data points. Some people probably have better data points than others others right like you know i don't know if his mom is the best person to be giving advice on internet um but like you know collect as many data points as you can weigh them accordingly but then make your own decision go forward with it right and and once you make that decision like move forward fast absolutely mm-hmm. um another quick thing about uh being a father um are you going to be like you know manager of a little league baseball team um maybe a coach you know just with your experience uh, as a founder, you know, you'll be maybe the founder of a team and, you know, being the manager of little kids. I feel like this would be good, something good for you that you can have a lot of success in. Uh, probably. I don't know. I imagine that I have, it is not a, um, I will not necessarily like, it's not a requirement of fatherhood for me. Yeah, I, yeah, uh, um, if, if it is a, if it's something I do, like I'm happy to do it, but it is not something that I'm like, I'm going to be like the little league coach. Yeah, so right, right. I guess I'd put it that way. And with that, I mean, your, your average quality is being a father, and that comes with many trials and error processes. But this is the next question is something that you keep in your back pocket that helps you overcome uh, uh, when pressure, become, pressure becomes stress and anxiety is rising. This is what Brett holds in his back pocket. So what do you hold in your back pocket, Brett? So uh, you, network, right? Mm-hmm. A network of good people that um, that I can call and talk to. Um, and, and quite honestly, like that is 
I mean, whether you're an entrepreneur going through the struggle, I mean, having somebody else that's at the same stage as you going through it, having a mentor that's been through it before, um, man, that's therapeutic. And that's really probably the most helpful thing. The other thing that I have in my back pocket is experience, right? And nice. I've been through like the grind so many times. It's It actually annoys some people. I don't ever get too high and I don't ever get too low. And that's largely driven by being having been CEO for a long time and not being able to show that to people, you know, like the show, the, the highs and lows. And so I don't, I'm terrible at celebrating things. I don't, I'm really bad. I'm the worst person in the world to give gifts to. They're like, oh, thank you. Right. And I, <laughs> but I don't get excited. I'm not excitable. Right. Um, I am a terrible person to give gifts to. Um, but I also, I never get too low on anything anymore either. So I don't get too high, too low. And that's driven from experience. And I, I think that's like a, one of my real strengths is never, is not overreacting to most things. So. Mm. I love that. You know, just try and handle everything the same, you know, stay even keel. Was there ever a time where like you got too excited or too in the dumps from like a past experience where you're like, I will never do that again? I'm sure there is. I um, <laughs> I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I, I'm sure there's been many times where I seem like I, an even keel guy just naturally, which is cool. I like that. I'm sure I've celebrated too hard and also <laughs> and also thought the world was ending you know, when it really wasn't, um, mm-hmm. in, on many occasions, but I, I really try not to, um, to do any of them or either of them much now. Yeah. And I, I like mean, that. and it challenges you, um, to stay even keel. It really makes you think clearly through the situation, whether you're excited or not excited about what's happening. Um, but we love to challenge ourselves on the back pocket podcast. And we do this by asking guests, um, who would they who would they like to see come on the show by either challenging someone inside your network, Brett, or someone that you think wouldn't even be possible, but you're saying, hey, Dak and Andy, go get these guys. I'm kind of curious uh, of flipping this and saying, like, who like who's your like North Star? Who is the person that you guys would love to have on the show? And like mm. who um, and each one of you. Right. Like, who's that? Like, Man, I wish I could have that person that would will have made it when we have this person on the show. I'm I think for me, it's Joe Rogan. He's the reason why I started listening to a podcast. He's the ultimate, uh, you know, just guys guy out there that has this like three and a half hour podcast that for some reason everyone buys into and listens to for full length. Uh, that's quite a commitment. And he's a, he's a conversationalist that's grown it through being himself. His product is him. He's just a mirror. The Joe Rogan experience is a mirror of him and everything that he's done. And that's kind of what we've tried to do in our own sense with the back pocket. Um, one person who's really had a big impact on me recently is uh, Tim Ferriss. I think having him on would be amazing, but even going kind of more closer to our network, uh, are you familiar with Cheryl Strayed? Um, so she went to St. Thomas, and her mom died her senior year of uh, college, and uh, she was going through like some tough times with her fiancé, and they eventually ended things too. She then uh, left and went and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, which is the six-month-long hike all along. Uh, California up to Oregon and then eventually into Washington and Canada, right? Yes. Um, so she ended up writing, uh, going through that whole thing right out of college and wrote a book on it, and it was called Wild. Ended up being made into a movie with Reese Witherspoon, and now she's like a national keynote speaker and everything. Love to just sit down and talk to her through her story and everything. There's just so many cool people. That podcast I emailed you with uh, Naval Rocky Tant or whatever, mm-hmm. He was on Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. I think usually one of the coolest podcasts I've ever listened to. That's another new guy on my list. It's like they they yeah. flood, they come in they come in. Uh, so fast. Bill Murray, 
I think uh, owner of the St. Paul Saints, realistic potentially. Potentially, potentially. I don't. Everyone's realistic. Crystalia, uh, yeah. But my favorite comic of all yeah, time. I'd love to have Bill Murray. I, Bill Murray would be sick. Yeah. Um, who else? I don't know any of these people. I was trying to find. So I was like, maybe, maybe I'll know somebody that I can help with a connection. But so far, I don't, I'm oh, striking out. Oh okay. man. Any, uh, any like entrepreneurs or keynote speakers? I guess like anybody in your network that you think is like a really cool person has an interesting story. You think would be good for us? I mean, there's a bunch of really interesting people in town that are doing cool things for yeah. um, the entrepreneur space, like um, that are definitely attainable, right? So there's um, the founders of this thing called Beta.mn. If you're familiar with it, it's a great nonprofit that is supporting entrepreneurship in the Twin Cities. Mm. Um, their um, uh, their founders are really interesting. Um, it's a cool story how they built this how they built this platform, how they built this program, how they're helping entrepreneurs in, in Minnesota. That one's kind of interesting. Um, there, I mean, like there, there's there really are some neat things going on. There's a woman that leads Grow North, which is a really again, it's another nonprofit that's helping early stage founders in the Twin Cities that are focused on food, and she's brilliant. Uh, she's external mills um, and a brilliant woman. Um, so there's a there's a bunch of people in the Twin Cities that have good stories that are also just really intelligent, really smart, and you can learn from. I like it. Love those challenges. All right, I have actually a game. Nice. It's a new game. It's called Would You Invest? Okay. Um, and I'm going to pitch you a company. Love it. And this is just off the top of my head. Love it. And I want to see if there is any interest. Um, okay, so this company, so this is based off of the premise of Lime. Have you heard of Lime? Mm-hmm. Those uh, yep, I know Lime. crazy scooters. So this one's called Banana. And these are motorized longboards that uh, we'd probably launch in California, Southern, Southern California along the beach, you know, but throw a bunch out there. But then uh, a portion of the profits, uh, we can kind of negotiate what that would be on giving back to making bananas non-GMO. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Why do you want to make bananas non-GMO? I don't know. I, I assume because, like, banana makes so much sense for, like, a longboard company. But then I was like, bana- there's definitely something with bananas that's not going well in the world. And I feel like GMO is tied to it. So <laughs> what do you th- is there is there other problems with bananas that we could put our money towards? Um First of all, without GMOs, we couldn't feed the world. So that's a great point. Um, uh, I don't even, I don't even know if uh, bananas are genetically modified, though. Are um, they not? I have some massive bananas downstairs. I was like, these cannot be they, normal. They could be. Um, uh, I like, I love, uh, I love the cause. It's all about the give back. Um, it's all about the give back, right? Love the cause. Uh, probably would not be an investor. I actually think there's a company in California already doing it. God um, damn it! Mm. And uh, which is actually probably a good sign. So I I am a firm believer that if you're the only one that has an idea, it's probably a really stupid idea. Um, That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, competition's always going to happen, even if it's not up front. Like you you might you're gonna have to execute at some point, anyways. All right. Um, but uh, probably not. We can keep playing the game though. Okay. I have uh, I have another one. I'll give you time to think of one, Andrew. Okay. Thank um, you. This one's called the Right Swipe Podcast. Okay. Um, and this would be a place where you'd have dinner. And you would only go there on like a date, first date. Maybe we call it the Right Swipe Podcast because of Tinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would be like an additional option to go to this place, ha- um, partner with like either food trucks or different local um, uh, food cr- caterers, I would say. I don't know, people making food. And you would record a podcast. And you guys would eat and dine in while recording a podcast. You guys could keep that for yourselves or distribute it out and to run a actual like entertainment show podcast if you so choose how's that company a billion dollar company um hmm 
Well, you can make it into a chain restaurant and put it all over the world. And then people love like entertainment in that reality aspect in a growing industry in the podcast, which is about a $500 million industry right now that, and if you look at radio, which is like $16 billion, the, you know, potential for podcasts is insane just from that standpoint. But if you can go through, if you make it a chain restaurant show, kind of do a, like a lean business model in a hot city, then you can kind of duplicate that around at least the United States and then grow from there and then make the whole thing about like having conversation is so much, so important and podcasts are really directed to that because it's an undistracted conversation for an hour and 10 minutes, you know, stuff like that <laughs> um, while enjoying good food. Man, I, I don't know. I think I like that one better than uh, better than banana long motorized longboard. Yeah, I, I had this one thought out a little bit more. I've been thinking about that one, so <laughs> um, I I still might have a hard time wrapping my head around the venture investability of it, though. Okay, mm. what what's like the barrier to entry for you? What do you think? Um, uh, market size is one of it, right? Like market um, size. Restaurants are really hard. Yes, that's so a great point. Re- most restaurants fail. Like so, just building a restaurant in general is really mm. tough so i don't know if i'd ever invest in a restaurant with the intention of making money um i might invest in a mm. restaurant just because because it might be fun to own a restaurant but, right but not necessarily to make money off mm. of it well the, the business model could be taking over abandoned wendy's because I, I i feel like they're downsizing all over and you just take over the abandoned wendy's well, well what you could do is like partner with other restaurants and then as long as like if, if they just like sponsored the food it, you would almost be like kind of a glue piece for them to have more like brand awareness for their food but at the same time it's um you're not directly running a restaurant mm. like your inventory is just a restaurant that has the actual inventory of the food <laughs> and then you and you partner with and then you partner with mtv which is dying uh the challenge which is not the exactly. challenge is keeping them afloat and exactly then, uh, yeah so yeah you gotta have wow. like a host in there like yeah. i feel like we get tj lavin he's been on this podcast <laughs> i feel like he'd be interested yeah um so i mean there's there's a lot of potential there. we'll come back with you in a few months when yeah. Wendy, is a great follow on twitter is it oh yeah their social media accounts are hilarious yeah. oh they yeah. always they take shots yes they yeah. do do they really for like a big corporation it's actually like they're quite good at social media mm-hmm. that's awesome well uh you got any dude no i don't got any. oh come on yeah. i want somebody to i want somebody to reinvent the pest control industry like pest really control. yeah okay. really unsexy not nearly as fun as long motorized longboards but i want somebody to like replace the orkin man okay like with like motorized mouse traps, like robot mouse traps, ro- mm. um, like ro- robot rodent traps. I think that'd be a really oh, cool thing to do. Okay, I wonder if you could just set up like grid lines within your own house that would just like find the holes where the rats are coming in, and then just like I don't know, set up a notify you where they're coming in, and you just set up a trap there or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's a lot of a lot of interesting things. Yeah, but that's you, a good one. Maybe you, you get the ants as well. Well, yeah, you sp- spray the Roundup right there, right? If yeah. you just put your house on like a a grid using a little artificial intelligent feedback loop, you know, you, you can figure it out, yeah. I feel like. There's something there. There's definitely something there. But, uh, Brett, we've been hammering you with questions now for a little over an hour. We'd love to give you the opportunity to ask us any questions. Um, what, like, I, I love the, the why the hell are you doing this, right? And that's my favorite part about talking with founders is regardless if you think the idea is stupid or not, right? Um, founders are passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. So like what's driving your guys' passion to do this? Um, driving the passion to have conversations and just learn a little bit more every single day. I think one thing that Andrew and I realize is what we're doing is we're the only ones right now having those conversations. Um, we're the only ones really trying to vest our own time into someone else's to understand and you know provide value to them at the end of the day. 
Um, but what's really cool is like the more you give your time to someone, the more you get back in return. And now we're starting to feel it, figure out like, okay, done this for two and a half years. We have some serious buy-in and now we're telling people like, yeah, we run three podcasts a week. We put in all this time to do that. And it's like, for what, for what, you know? And, uh, we, I just want to, I'm starting to, we're starting to see kind of stars align in different areas with like being so organic with our content and now factoring in the brand awareness key. And then once you start getting companies involved, once you start getting like people who want to put their brands together and want to do it organically in a time where you're getting hit with how many ads a week, what what was that stat you told me about with where you're hit getting hit with like twenty something or yeah, I don't remember the stat, but yeah, yeah, hammered, hammered with advertising. You're getting hammered with advertising mm-hmm. all over now and people really like that dumbed down organic organic type feel. And I feel like that's kind of like where our niche is starting to transition to. Mm-hmm. We're a, we're a feel good podcast. We don't ask the tough questions, and that's, well, we do ask. We do. Yeah, we, we asked them. We asked them. Vest like fifteen minutes ago. Oh, you're right. <laughs> we ask the tough. We ask tough questions at times. At times. At times. Um, but the intention of what we're doing is when the guest leaves the room or when someone listens to our podcast, they they're uplifted. They have a sense of like, wow, this is my my dreams, my goals, my day to day. I can I have the, the the control, the the value to make the difference. And uh, Brett, you're an awesome guest, and I love having you on. Um, th- there's uh, there, there's other guests that haven't done much. They're 22 years old, and they they feel like they don't have a story to share when they come on our podcast. Like I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Those seem to be the most rewarding because a lot of them have a sense of anxiety with public speaking, or they're they're naturally a quiet person, and we get them going 15, 10 minutes in. And they're they've loosened up, and at the end of those ones, they are the people that walk out here, and they have an ultimate sense of confidence in themselves to go accomplish what they just said on our very podcast. So those are the different variations of why we're doing it, and why we're going to continue to do it because we find the value in the person across from us. Do you want to take it to the next level, and like, do you want to do something different? Like, do you want to go to, and what is the next level, right? So that's my next question, right? Is do you want to take this to a, a different place or, I mean, are you really happy with where you, you've had some success success over two and a half years? You've built an organic following. People really enjoy this. You have passionate, you know, a passionate user or listener base. What's next? Um, what do you want to do next? I want to um, continue to talk to our audience. Um, and this is involving like the keynote aspect that you were uh, describing uh, uh, earlier. And I find a lot of value in talking to our high schools around the Twin Cities. I mean, we want to dominate the sandbox and mm-hmm. it, we can we can truly appreciate the sandbox by talking to our high school students, to our middle school students, because Declan's an engineer. I'm a business major. And we had just so happened to run into this technology industry of marketing that we really didn't have much uh, balance of and experience at all really yeah and we're a, the the best thing that we got going for us is we're wildly average guys that just so happen to have an extraordinary passion to help people and we want to share that message and just pop into a high school and talk to their technology department talk to their yearbook club talk to the engineering uh the science whatever i don't even know what classes you take in high school that are engineering but <laughs> those type of things i am excited about and if we had the time and in the the ability to do that that's the that's the top of the list for me yeah i i I totally agree on that and what's crazy is like it all started because we just like took a chance on facebook advertising we're like you know what like let's just let's just spend money to understand more about our audience and the craziest thing that we've found was like okay we're posting nine times a week organically on instagram we 
we've grown from just one time a one time a week to one time a day to now maybe a couple times a day and then three podcasts a week and then yeah one podcast a week maybe to two podcasts a week to three we even got up to four and now we're back to three um <laughs> for time reasons totally um and it's a crazy schedule for, it is a crazy for, schedule yeah. it is insane but so we have all this organic content we're like all right let's just put some paid to it and see how it responds and what we found was insane we found that the out like facebook algorithm algorithms were just taking us right to 13 to 17 year old kids and we're like why do we never think of that like why do we never think that like we were looking like looking like a couple cool guys to uh, a bunch of high schoolers that were in that like don't really know what they're doing and you know we can provide as much advice to people our age and maybe highlight their own stories to inspire people. But the real people that are like really vested in us clearly are these high schoolers, which is that was like our first ever Facebook advertising review meeting was like, Oh man, we need to go talk to high schoolers. Um, and it, it, it's cool. It's, it's really cool. And I think the fact that we're using social media so differently than a lot of people, instead of like getting something, we're just using social media to give you something. And I think that has totally changed our mindset. And now it's just like, where do we go with it? Right. It's just now, it's now kind of just about taking that action, that next step to the next level, as you say. What do you need to do it? Oh, uh, we need uh, the ability to pay for our college loans and our, our rent. rent. Um, and and just, but just probably pay. food as well. Yeah. I was thinking about that. We never included that the, the first time we were like going through a budget. budget. We were yeah. like, oh. We don't eat food. We don't eat food. Yeah, just pay for it. And he has a Costco membership, so I don't know if that's that. I didn't even think about that. Sixty dollars a year. Love Costco. Yeah, love Costco. Buying in bulk, left and right. Just cover our baseline. I mean, uh, that's like that's what we've talked about. If we can find a a way to knock those expenses, um, there's real traction there for taking this the uh, to the moon. To the moon. And what's Mm -hmm. cool about it too is like podcasts is like the the one of the coolest annuities you could ever ask for because you're getting paid per the download. And if we're going around the world, let's allegedly the world, mm-hmm. you know, speaking to all these different young entrepreneurs or high schoolers or whatever, like that, those are freaking word of mouth marketing and impacts that we're making right then and there. And then not only are we're already producing so much content that's reaching to this audience. And then now you're telling me companies the like one of the biggest issues is Gen Z. How do we market to Gen Z? Well, you're looking at two guys who are inspiring a Gen Z market. And all we have to do is get creative about how we put a brand awareness ad to these Gen Zers because these guys grew up with phones. These guys grew up with Facebook ads. These guys grew up with all this you know, BS and the the things that they follow are freaking YouTubers and, you know, they buy the clothes that their favorite streamer wears and they do all this other stuff in the, so that's why I said that, that brand awareness thing is totally kind of flipped on its head where it's not, you're getting hit with Geico ads on Facebook on like a, on a Saturday watching NFL. Like those guys don't care about that. They, yep. they care about something totally different. So that's why like there's so much to it. And the best part is, is the podcast thing is a whole annuity that will only be fueled through the other things that we're doing. So thank you for asking those questions and yeah. challenging us. Uh, you can clearly see we're, we're stoked and excited to uh, yeah. to continue to pursue this because this is nothing that uh, we're closing the door on after you walk out of here. We're like, oh, he asked us those questions. Great, now let's move on type thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Brett. Appreciate that, man. Uh, but any final questions? I'm good. All right, we'll bring it to the last question, Brett. This is a simple question. What did you learn today from the moment that you woke up to when we're having this question? Or to having this podcast. Yeah. What did I learn today? Um, gosh, I mean, I, the I learned a lot about podcasts, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, it's 
this is why I love my job is I sit and talk to entrepreneurs all the time and people that know a lot more about their industry or a lot more about their space than I ever will. And so um, just learning about like the production of a podcast like this, right? I mean, sitting in this room um, is awesome. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal thing to do. And seeing like the passion in both of you is, is great. And, and that is, um, that's probably my biggest takeaway from today. And will be the biggest takeaway from today will be, will be that will be that experience. Um, so not exactly answered your question, but, um, but, but a really cool experience. Awesome. I have one more actually for you. How close are you to, uh, recording your first ever podcast? I don't know. It's a hell of a question. That is a hell of a question. I, I don't have a <laughs> probably no class closer than last time we talked, and that's and that's totally fine. Yeah. I'm not trying to grill you or nothing. No, but, no, no. no. Um, what's funny is like we have people come to us all the time, and be like, "I want to start a podcast. I want to start a podcast." But like that first, I mean, it's not hard to start a podcast. Yep. Believe me. But like the <laughs> it's it's not. <laughs> You're hard. just a couple of average people that did it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we literally all we do is hit record. Yeah. Um, but um. I, I'm just stoked for you because I want you to go through something like this and I know the knowledge and the network that you have and the potential that's behind it and it's just it is hard to start it is hard to produce and there are other things to to keep it consistent but I'm just very excited for you to start whenever that may be that's cool I did start um, which were I haven't formally pushed it live yet but I did start doing quick really quick um, like I call it like entrepreneurial hot takes um, yeah. on YouTube and nice. so I've got I did. I've recorded ten now over the last couple since we met. Uh, the last couple was a little bit um, quicker path for me to get something out there. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are they're all from me so far. They don't. Have, there's no external people helping me with it yet, yeah. um, or guests or anything like that. But it's all like minute and a half to three minute, like kind of hot, quick takes about. And they're all geared towards here's a tip or trick around entrepreneurship. Um, and so I did start doing that uh, since last time we talked. So I did start doing some content, although it wasn't a podcast form yet 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 love that I'm, I'm looking forward to that and you know you're going to get that question every single time you see us yep uh, how close are you have you started it but uh brett thank you so much for joining the back pocket we really do appreciate your time thanks for having me guys this is-